Wow, what a week this has been. Um, I don't know how many of you knew we had on Thursday when our staff was here at the church, uh, they started hearing some running water. And uh, actually it wasn't, uh, there were no faucets on, it was uh, frozen pipes thawing out. And uh, fortunately, being here, and of course, Pastor Damien immediately went and tried to find the shutoff valve, and he did. Now he knows where it is. I know where it is. We know where it is. Shut off the water, and we had the crew. Greg was here, and Kent, uh, trustees, everybody came. And uh, so if you see some holes in walls and some things, it wasn't, it wasn't a youth group activity or something. <laughs> it, was, it was our trustees getting to the pipe so we could uh, fix that and uh, clean it up. So anyway. Coldest temperatures of the century, followed by 70-degree rise. That's, that's pretty amazing. Welcome to Wisconsin. That's what I've been told. Welcome to Wisconsin. How many of you stayed inside and took extra time to rest? Okay, so most, of you, most of you did that. And today, of course, is the Super Bowl. Yeah, talking about rest. Last Sunday, we began a series entitled Choose to Stand, a, a series on the book of Joshua. God's people always have a choice. In Joshua 24, 15, it says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Israel, the, the people of God in the Old Testament, were preparing to enter and conquer and occupy the land of Canaan, the, the area today that's known as Israel or Palestine. Canaan was occupied by a corrupt and brutal people who practiced the Canaanite religion. And their religion included prostitution, infant sacrifice, and immorality on a scale that we have begun to see in America today. In order to succeed, the nation of Israel would need to take a stand. They'd have to stand the ground. They'd have to stand firm. And that included a rejection, any form of compromise, and unconditional obedience to God, the God of the word and, and God's commands. And being successful or true success for them was measured in the terms of, of possessing all that God had for them, possessing the whole land. Last Sunday, we looked at the blueprint for success. We looked at the, the plans of God, leave the past behind and move forward in faith. We looked at the promises of God. Uh, God promised possession, he promised power, and he promised uh, the presence of God, that God would always be there. And then prosperity. We talked about the fact that when we study and, and, and obey the word of God, God will prosper us and give us good success. Today we're going to talk about rest. Rest. Now, we use the word rest in, in many different ways. Rest stop in a highway. Uh, restaurant, where we eat. The rest home. Restless. Restore or restore. And each use denotes a different use of the word rest. Now, some of you have come to church today to find rest. It's not an invitation to sleep during my sermon, just, just to give you an update. Rest in the dictionary is defined as peace, ease, or refreshment. Refreshing ease or inactivity after work or exertion. It's relief from anything distressing, annoying, or tiring. It's peace of mind. It's mental and emotional calm or tranquility. And today we're going to look at rest, the rest of the story. Rest was one thing that was promised to Israel, but it's, it's a little different than what we think of as rest. So I want us to read about it as we look at Joshua, the first chapter. Joshua, 
1, and we're going to look at verses 10 to 18. It's on page 169 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Page 169, Joshua 1, starting with verse 10. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here and go in to take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the command that Moses the servant gave you, the Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise." Then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and whatever you send us, wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey your words, whoever, whatever you command them will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. We're going to start with the rest that is promised. Rest promised. Roman numeral one. In verse 13, God promised rest to his people. And in verse 15, God talks about rest for all the other people. Now up to this point, the nation of Israel had failed to enter God's plan for rest. They had spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness instead of choosing to go forward and possess all that God had for them, which was a description of rest. Rest can be described and possessed in different ways. And I want to talk about four requirements or four aspects of rest today. For Israel to have rest and for us to have rest in this definition, we must have these four aspects. Without them, not so much. The first one, letter A, is drive the enemy out. Drive the enemy out. In other words, have an absence of the enemy. Israel had to take the initiative. They had to engage the enemy, and they had to occupy the land. We talked about that last, last Sunday. We talked about the fact that the land was given to them, but they actually had to go in and occupy it. They had to possess it. But in order to do that, they had to engage in battle. They had to fight to win. They had to drive the enemy out. They had to render the enemy powerless. As long as the Canaanites were in the land, there was not going to be any rest. In the same way, we cannot relax or rest when the enemy lives in our neighborhood, constantly trying to destroy us. Jesus says, and the Bible says that Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan to render him powerless. Jesus came to defeat the enemy. Now, just so we are clear here, people are not the enemy. Okay? In, in the Old Testament, the people that were the enemy of God were the ones that were worshiping idols practicing this horrible sins that was going on and God needed to, cl to, to cleanse the land so that he could establish a nation of Israel. In that case, Satan was the enemy. People were, it was working out in the context of people that were worshiping the devil. But in our context, remember, people are not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. 
In Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For, this is very critical, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Spiritual forces of heavenly realms. De the devil and his, and his minions, his demons, that's, that's who our enemy is. And it says in that passage, stand against. In fact, the word against is used five times in that one short passage. And it describes our role spiritually. Our role spiritually. That means standing, it means fighting. Israel was faced with a mortal enemy, Satan, who controlled and used human instruments to propagate evil in the world. And they were tasked with re removing those human instruments from the promised land so that God could occupy the land through his people. They were commanded to drive the enemy out physically. And they would also, when they did that, would drive the enemy out spiritually. We are commanded to drive the enemy out spiritually. Okay, let's make a distinction there. Our weapons of warfare are spiritual in nature. But the intention is the same. It's to defeat the enemy and drive the enemy out. When Jesus was on earth, he defeated Satan when he died on the cross, when he was buried, when he was resurrected, and he ascended into heaven. And those actions that, that we talked about last Sunday brought for us, what Jesus did, brought for us every spiritual blessing and we're called on to possess, including rest, full possession of everything that God has for us. Now, in order to have rest in our lives personally, we may need to take the initiative to drive the enemy out of our homes by turning off TV programs that promote immorality or normalize sexual perversion, glamorize violence and, and revenge or entices us to materialism. Might be turning off soap operas or sitcoms or Netflix or Hulu. We many times invite the enemy into our actual homes with immoral magazines, R-rated movies, or internet pornography. There are a lot of ways that we allow the enemy into our homes and into our personal lives, and we may need to take the initiative, not may, we have to take the initiative, to drive the enemy out. There was a man in a previous congregation that had a problem with pornography prior to coming to Jesus Christ, and he came to faith in Christ. And he tried to change his life, he, he, and he changed his internet providers, changed passwords, and nothing, nothing he tried could keep him from accessing internet porn, and it was destroying his marriage. And I told him, I said, if you value a relationship with Jesus, you value your marriage, get offline, just stay offline. If you can't control it, you need to completely stay offline. He had to drive the enemy out of his home by going off the internet completely. Drive the enemy out. Drive the enemy out by prayer and fasting. There's a spiritual battle. Men, we are the leaders in the home and we may need to take the, the lead of prayer and fasting in our household where we pray and, and make sure that, that Jesus is preeminent and you may need to drive the enemy out by having prayer in your home. Prayer. Drive the enemy out by being light in a dark world. Light dispels darkness and no matter where you are, light will dispel that darkness. And so driving the enemy out by just being spirit-filled, 
full of the light of Jesus will dispel darkness around us. Now, one of the things that we like to think is that if we just build relationships with our neighbors and friends, we can do that by our winsome and love and behavior. And, and most of the time that, that works. If we have a good relationship with people, people will listen to what we have to say. Now, I think that what we're seeing in our country today is, is a polarization and something that's happening that we didn't really anticipate because we think, you know, I, I love people, I'm nice to them, I'm kind to them, um, I engage them in a relationship and they're gonna listen to what I have to say and they're gonna like me. It's not always the case. Sometimes they won't like us. In John 15, John 15 is a chapter where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. He says, if you abide in me and connect, stay connected to me, you will bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, stay connected to me. And then he says at the end of chapter 15, he says in John 15, 18 to 20, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Wow, didn't, didn't Jesus come to love? Yes, he did. But he made somebody upset, they killed him. Somebody hated him because he shared the truth with them. Aren't we supposed to love? Yes, we are supposed to love. But when we confront sin and unrighteousness, we may be hated. It's a, Ameri it's a different America right now than it was 20 years ago. Latent hostility towards Christianity or, or to belief in Jesus or anything that stands for truth. I just pray for truth. Truth, truth, truth. Truth makes people angry sometimes. John 15, 24 said, Jesus said, they hated me without reason. And we say, I didn't sign up for this. Actually, you did. You did. We need, in this day and age, we need warriors, not wimps. We need warriors, people who are willing to stand up for truth. This is not the popular feel-good message of just be a Christian, love everybody, and everybody's gonna love you. It's changing, there's a sea change in our country right now, and you've seen it. You see it in the media, you see it on television. You see the hostility. It's all over the place. And if we want to have rest in our homes, we must drive the enemy out and live in righteousness. We need men and women who are courageous and will take this seriously and drive the enemy out. Now, you can say, how, how can I do this? That's a, that's a good question. I don't know how, how I can do this. Kevin Myers, who's the pastor of a Wesleyan church called 12 Stone Church, largest Wesleyan church in America, down in Atlanta, he wrote a book, Grown Up Faith. He spoke at our pastor's conference and he just, he just wrote a book called Grown Up Faith. And he, he writes this, he says, we try out faith instead of training in faith. We try out faith instead of training in faith. 
He says, trying can never match the power of training. Then he illustrates. He says, when it comes to physical fitness, I've had many seasons when I've tried to lose fat, get fit, and have a better life physically. But for the most part, I have fallen far short of my goals. He said, when I become desperate to get results, I call up a trainer, pay him more than I want, and conform to the demands he makes that I hate. <laughs> I like that. Good trainers make me keep an honest journal of my food intake, my workouts, and the calories I burn. They make me weigh myself daily and send them pictures of my weight on the scale each morning. How would you like to do that? I've never had anybody ask me to do that. And he says, and I have to be honest, every time I follow the training of a fitness coach, I get real results. Okay, trying, I'm just trying to be a Christian or I'm training to be a Christian. 1 Timothy 4, 8 through 10, in the message says this, it says it this way. He says, exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in the gymnasium are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so, making you fit both today and forever. You can count on this. Take it to the heart. This is why we've thrown ourselves into this venture so totally. We're banking on live, a living God, Savior of all men and women, especially believers. Training. Not just trying, but training. Discipline. We wonder why we're restless people pursuing materialism, overcome by fear, powerless to evoke life change. Why do we have no rest? Drive the enemy out first. Ephesians 4.27 says, do not give the devil an opportunity. We can give him openness in our lives. That's first and foremost. The second aspect of rest is possession of the land. Possession of the land. Possessing all that God has for us. I, I talked about this last week. For Ephesians 1.3 says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. Now let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer it out loud. Do you want more of God? You want more of God. I have been absolutely blown away by reports from our children's ministry that Nancy leads that their prayer for this year was that they would get closer to God. That's our kids. Is that your prayer? Do you want more of God? Do, do we want more of what God wants to give us? How is your spiritual appetite? How is your spiritual appetite? Many times we don't have the desire or appetite for more of God because we fill our lives with too many other things. Just too many other things out there. Now, you've heard the saying. It's, it's, a, it's a great saying. I, I like it. It says, life is uncertain. Eat dessert first. Okay? Remember that? Everybody know that? Life is uncertain. Eat dessert first. Desserts aren't bad. They're just not nutritious. And they can replace the appetite for the good with the empty. Eat dessert first. And if we fill our stomachs with dessert, we don't get the good food because there's no appetite left. And many times we eat and drink at the dessert table and have no appetite left for the things of God. I'm full. My life is full with what? Fun, recreation, possessions, activity, whatever. Do we hang on to our possessions for dear life? I have a friend who grew up in South Africa, and he liked to play golf. 
I've had this discussion many times with golfers. Is golf really a sport? But that's, that's another time. Golf. He, he loved to play golf. And in South Africa, they had sand traps and they had water hazards. They had challenging courses, just like we do in all the golf courses in the USA. But one of their main problems at golf courses in South Africa was monkeys. Monkeys. Monkeys like golf balls. And so you would get this drive and put it right in the middle of the fairway and out from the trees, a monkey would come up, grab it and run away. <laughs> I'm serious. Monkeys. So what was the solution to monkey kidnapping golf balls? Well, they found a solution. The groundskeeper would find a narrow-necked gourd. He'd find a gourd with a narrow neck in it. And he'd fill it with peanuts. And then he'd place these peanut-filled gourds all over the golf course. And the monkeys who love peanuts would stick their hand in the gourd and grab a handful of peanuts. And they were unable to get their hand out because they had the handful of peanuts. And the monkey would not let go of the treasure. And unable to remove his hand, he had to drag the gourd along the ground, which slowed him down so he could be caught. You can easily catch a, a monkey dragging a gourd around. That was their solution to monkeys on the golf course. What's my point? Well, sometimes we hang onto our possessions so tightly to our peanuts that they either slow us down or lead us to enslavement. Just get that picture. We hang onto things so tightly that it slows us down, leads to enslavement. Do you possess your possessions? Or do your possessions possess you? Is your life so full of peanuts you cannot possess anything of God? And then we wonder, why, why do we have no rest? God, God has everything we need to possess for rest. Possession. The third aspect of rest is peace, peace. Now, when we think of peace, we most often think of the absence of conflict or war, and that is one of those aspects of it. And while peace does include absence of war and conflict, it's really far more. The, the Hebrew concept of peace, shalom, is comprehensive. It's not only absence of conflict, it's also wholeness and rightness, being in, in, in wholeness and rightness with people and circumstances, inward and outward. You can draw a circle around yourself and peace means complete well-being in every direction, inward and outward. Wholeness. And I cannot have true rest without peace. I cannot have peace when I'm not in right relationship with people or with circumstances. And of course, the reason Jesus came is so that we could have peace with God to restore the broken relationship that we had with our creator God. Jesus came, died so that he had removed the, the, the conflict, the cause of conflict in our sin and wrong deeds, so we can, in the ultimate sense, have peace with God, which gives us peace with ourselves and peace with our fellow human beings. Peace, peace equals rest. And fourthly, rest is open relationship with God. Open a relationship with God. How does that come about? Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Joshua led those people into the land and rest. Jesus today leads us into the land and the rest. It's through Jesus that we find 
rest. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Through Jesus, we have victory over Satan, our enemy. Through Jesus, we have possession of all spiritual blessings. It's through Jesus we have removal of guilt and sin, which gives us peace. And it's through Jesus that we have this open relationship with God. That's right. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We just receive that gift because Jesus died for our sins so that we could have that kind of gift. Rest has much more to do with relationship as absence of conflict. So rest, rest is promised. Rest is, is, is available. It's promised to us. Next, we have Roman numeral two. We have the rest for the rest. What does that mean? What does that mean? The rest for the rest. Verses 12 to 15. It says, But to the Reubenites and the Gadites and half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant, the Lord gave you. The Lord your God has given you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, livestock may stay, etc. But you must be fully armed, cross over ahead. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest as well. See, there were two and a half tribes of Israel. When, when Israel got through wandering in the desert and the wilderness, if, you, if you've ever read through, and I'm right in the middle of Exodus Numbers and some of those other very interesting books, and you get to the point geographically, watch a map. They ended up on the east side of the Jordan River. And, and two and a half tribes said, you know, we like this part of the land. Can we? And they had conquered it. They were just waiting to cross, into the, cross the Jordan River into the, into the western side of the Jordan River towards the Mediterranean. And so they were there. And two and a half tribes said, we like this, this part of the land. Uh, we've already conquered it. It's good for grazing. And we have a lot of things here. Can we stay here? And he said, yes. Because the enemy had already been driven out. And their temptation, since they already had their possession, would be to say, we got our land, we got our rest, go get yours, good luck, we'll be praying for you. Okay? That's not what they did. Joshua spoke to them about the responsibility to see that all the children of Israel had rest. The rest for the rest. Even though they had possession of their land, they were not to rest until all the people had the same rest and possession. Even though they had it, they said, you've got a responsibility to make sure the rest of the nation has it. The church of Jesus Christ today has a responsibility to see that all have the chance to have rest. Make disciples of all peoples, all nations. That mission never ends. It's never complete until everyone on earth has a chance to respond to the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And we look at people all around us that are driven by ambition and fear and appetites and meaninglessness, they have no rest. People desperately need rest. They need that possession of all that God has for them. Who's going to bring them rest? Who's going to lead the people of our community into the rest that Jesus offers? It's us. Now, we cannot force people to listen and accept Jesus' offer, but we can communicate. We have this rest you too can have this rest. And we cannot rest totally until they have that rest. This includes our missions effort overseas. It's why we do missions. It's why we support missions. The rest for the rest. We cannot rest until there's rest for the rest, leading people of the world into their full potential.
Rest for the rest. What about the people God uses? Number three. Who is God going to use for this purpose? And what can we learn from this passage? First of all, selfless. People who are selfless. Joshua is speaking to a group of people who are probably relatively content, but they were willing to subordinate their personal interests for the common good of everybody. The common good of everybody. Now, we, we've taken this journey a little bit here in Eau Claire, so you'll understand. There's an elderly woman in our Seattle congregation that said one day, contemporary music is not my preference. I do not really care for drums. But I'm willing to give up my preference in order that others might come to Christ. I'm willing to give up my preference. Selfless. So it's not, not, it's not about us, it's about them. It's about who's not yet here. How do, we, how do we make it about them instead of us? These two and a half tribes said, even though we have our land, our rest and inheritance, we will fight side by side. We will risk our lives so that you too can have your possession. The church of Jesus Christ today needs people who are selfless, who will subordinate their needs for the needs of someone else. And it takes all of us. It takes all of us. Some people will say, you know, I've, I've put my time in. Now it's time for my rest. Let others step up and do the work. <laughs> Ministry in the body of Christ never ends. It never ends. We are a family. We're a body. God has called us all. Selfless. Secondly, God calls a people who are unified. One purpose, one goal, one leader. John Huffman writes this. He says, the world laughs at a divided church. And they do. The world laughs at a divided church. It admires a people, however, that differs in ages, temperaments, dress, economics, race, and political ideology, but has oneness rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Wow, how can you guys all just get along? Amazing. He said, there are two kinds of Christian communities. One is like seagulls, made up of loners. You are only safe if you as an individual have got it together. You're wounded, you are left to take care of yourself. So the other community is like Canadian geese. They help each other as they fly. They take turns in the lead position, cutting through the air interference, creating a draft that makes it easier for others to fly. No one ever drops out alone. If one is injured, another stands by nursing it to health. It is a unified community that does not encourage superstar status. People all around us are looking for community, a community that cares and loves and is unified. It's very interesting. I don't have the article with me, but it was a, it was a, there were a group of atheists in the city of San Francisco, and they had no community. And they looked at the church and said, man, they've got all these things. We're going to do that too. So they started a church for atheists just to have community. They did the, all the things that churches do to develop community. They loved each other and had potlucks. And, it, you know, it was like the church of the atheists. They just needed Jesus. That's the only thing. But that's, that's people recognize community. Then they see it. They know if you're cared for. They know when we care. Unified. In, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul addresses divisions in the church. I, I don't know if you talk to people. I, 
when I talk to people, I try to, I, I try to conceal as long as I can that I'm a pastor because it's a conversation killer. They just, they just, you know, they quit talking or they just start talking about religion or I don't know, whatever. And so when I'm talking to people at Gold's Gym or someplace, I, I just try to uh, not tell them what I do. Um, but when they find out, they always say, why are there so many denominations? <laughs> Oh man, I hate that question. It's like, like how in the world, do you, how do you answer that? Because it makes us look divided rather than unified. You know? and, and we can minimize that by, by that one, one of the greatest ways that we minimize that. I, I love the pastors group. We have about 15 pastors and we're, it's growing too that meet once a month to, uh, together. And we just, we just fellowship. There's no agenda except fellowship, communication. We talk about things that, we, uh, that challenge us and it's all cross-denominational here in Eau Claire. Great group of pastors from all over this community. And I love meeting with them because it, it's an expression of unity. In, in 1 Corinthians, uh, there was the, the problem of divisions. One, there's a group that said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm from Cephas, I follow Christ. Uh, people say, I'm Methodist, I'm Presbyterian, I'm Pentecostal, I'm Lutheran, I'm Charismatic, I'm Catholic, I'm Baptist, or Independent. You know, you, you look at that all over and they say, well, why are there so many denominations? I don't have an easy answer for that, but I do know that in God's mysterious design, he's created different denominations to minister to different cultures and different types of people in different parts of the world. So it's like this infinite multiplication. It's not perfect, but that's okay. We can demonstrate that kind of unity cross-denominationally for those that worship Jesus Christ and hold of the word of God. Unity and unity in within our church, very important. Letter C, obedient, obedient. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. And the qualifier, as long as we remain under God's leadership and don't wander off on tangents, following godly leadership. God, God has called us to obedience. I answer to my superintendent. I answer to, and I'm accountable to the LBA, our, our local board of administration, under structure laid down by our denominational guidelines. We're all under authority. We all have, have leadership. We're called to obedience. God has called us all to obedience to the word of God. What does the word of God say? Obedience, very crucial in finding rest. And then also people that are prepared. What kind of people are we to be? Verse 14 says that they were fully armed, prepared for battle, and again, when I think about the battle we're in, I think about Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 talks about the, the armor that we have. The first part of our armor is something called truth, and we desperately need truth today. It's not my truth, your truth. There, is, there are facts and there are opinions. There's truth and there's opinion. Truth is very stubborn. And making sure that we understand that, that truth is truth. That's our our most incredible part of our, of our weapon. There's righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer and petition. Now we know, you know and I know, we're not as aware of it all the time, that in Eau Claire we are in contested territory. Okay, We're in contested territory. And, and, and I think that I, I didn't know that as, as much until, until I was at a, a meeting and they were talking about the fact that Eau Claire is the second in the nation, second in the nation per capita for drunkenness. 
second in the nation for alcohol abuse drunkenness. That means there, there's a spiritual battle here. There, there is, there's contested territory. Satan's trying to destroy our people through alcohol and addictions and all kinds of things. And some of you have been victims of that. There is a spiritual battle going on. We, we conceal it, we hide it. We go to our nice homes in the suburbs or out in the country, we, all of that. There is a huge battle here for the soul of this city. When we pastored a church in Seattle, it was in an area called Ballard. Ballard. And in Ballard, as we discovered, it was an area full of evil and the occult. It had historically been this Norwegian fishing community on the, on the Puget Sound and slowly changed. And now it was the center of the women of wisdom who were Wiccans and practicing witchcraft. The Rosicrucians, they had, we had two strip clubs within a half a mile. There was the Church of the Divine Man. It was the center of the lesbian community in all of Seattle. We had graffiti spray painted on our stonework once on the wall because of our stand on homosexuality. There was an atmosphere of hostility to the church and Christianity. One Easter weekend, I've shared this story with some of you personally, but I've never shared it with the whole congregation. One Easter weekend, I left the church at 8, 8 p.m. after a Saturday night prayer meeting. All around the church, much like what we do, we had, we had live lily plants. We had live lily plants, different parts of the church, to celebrate the, the new life of the, of the resurrection. They had been placed and watered by our custodian. They were all really good and alive. I left this Saturday night at eight o'clock. On Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday morning, I entered the back door of the church and looked towards the lobby. And in the front of the church were these large picture windows with two glass doors. And we had a lily on each side placed just inside the door. And they looked out over a large concrete patio that was outside those doors. There are two lily plants, one on this side and one on this side. And the one on this side was normal and alive. The other one was wilted and dead. It was dead. As I came closer, I discovered it was not only shriveled, it was shriveled up, dried up, and dead. The change was astonishing. The dramatic difference between this lily plant and this lily plant were amazing. I just left eight hours earlier. Right outside the window on the concrete patio in front of that lily plant was a large satanic symbol drawn in what appeared to be blood. And that lily was totally dead. I don't tell you that to freak you out. It freaked me out. But it was to remind me that people, organizations, and forces in and around our church were attempting to place curses and hoaxes and spells on our church. There was a lot of demonic activity, and they were taking not just covert action, but overt action against our church because we lifted up Jesus and spoke truth. It's like a friend of ours, Rich Wilkerson, was having a crusade in Mexico City and witches were marching around the stadium praying against him, trying to stop him from declaring Jesus Christ 
as Lord. We, we don't see this a lot. It's kind of hidden, but it's real. We have in and around Eau Claire the same kinds of activity. It's more hidden. It takes different forms, I can guarantee you, that we have people and demonic spirits actively fighting what we are doing. We must be prepared to fight. We must be prepared to fight. Prepared. Finally, the people God uses, brave, brave. He says, only be strong and courageous. Only be strong and courageous. We need brave warriors, people willing to, to give it all and to risk it all. Expendable for Jesus. The stakes are high. They could not be higher. Souls of men and women. The souls of children who are being deceived in our community. The stakes are high. People desperately need rest. They need the possession. They need the peace of God. Our mission for them is rest. The rest of the story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God that has given us the means and the weapons for fighting spiritual battles. And I pray, God, that you would wake us up, that we would understand that we need more of you, that we need your power more than ever. And if we're going to make a difference in this community, it's not just about survival, it's about, about thriving and moving forward into battle of possessing all that you have for us, that we would have the, have the courage to stand and we would choose to stand firm on truth and, and your word. And Father, we thank you that you've given us the name above all names, the, the powerful name of Jesus. And I pray, God, that we would just grasp in a small way today the power that we have in Jesus' name. And we thank you. Let's stand, shall we?